All right, we covered the background material. Your goal, of course, is to identify the theme. The background material points to that, and I'm going to explain more of that when we talk about themes here coming up. The background material is important in its own right, but it's also important to help identify the theme. Now, the way to find the background material is honestly just to read the book so that you have a pattern, I think, that you should be catching me saying over and over again. And the, the move is read the book, read the book again, intentionally look for it as you're reading, and uh, if you don't find it the first time, read it again. It, it's that simple. Now, here's what you've probably trained yourself to do, and that is, uh, you know, you, you're probably having devotions, reading on your own. I'm guessing that, uh, uh, you know, you sit down with your Bible in the morning or at night or whatever, and you kind of read it a little bit. And on Monday, you're going to open it and read here, and on Tuesday, you're going to maybe read a different passage or or read a little further in the book or whatever. You're just going to spend a little time reading the book. But you've trained yourself then to jump around. And what I'm encouraging you to do is just take a book of the Bible and try to start figuring out what a book says. There's only 66 of them. Uh, you can do one at a time. And, and so you spend two or three months in one book. Read the book. Sit down and read the whole book again. Don't worry about the other 65 books. You're working on this one. And, and while you're reading, just intentionally read those next books, okay? I mean, that same book. Just read intentionally, looking for background material. Your goal, however, is to find the theme. The theme is the largest literary unit of the composition. It's the subject around which the composition is written. It's the theme that God wants to communicate in his inspired text. And so your job is to find out what God is talking about when he wrote this book. And you're not going to get that one time through. You're really not. You have to work at it. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. It doesn't say read to show yourself approved unto God. It says study. And so don't be afraid to say for the next three months, I'm going to ignore 65 books of the Bible, but I'm going to put my heart and soul into one of them. And just read one. Read it again. Read it, read it, read it. And get familiar with one, and you will be better off, in my opinion. Now, here's where I think you could also consult reference works. If you noticed, I haven't said at one time yet, well, look at the notes in your Bible, or I haven't said, buy a commentary. I haven't done any of that. And in fact, I don't encourage you to do any of that initially. But I know what it's like to read and kind of hit a wall and go, I have no idea what's going on here. I need help. So then I would turn to my commentaries or my, my notes or something. I would, I would go to a reference that would help me get this information and get it right. This is the time to do it if you're just completely stumped. Don't do it first so that you don't do any other reading and discovery on your own. Do some work on your own, and then if you just hit a wall, you have to refer to uh, reference works. Now, you're not going to have to do that in most of the New Testament books. Most of the New Testament books, you're going to be able to find author, audience, occasion, and purpose. 
what you're not going to be able to do is find that to be just as easy in the Old Testament books. The Old Testament books are narrative, they're uh, historical prophecy and so forth, and those types of writings are just harder and you can't really put it all together because your mind is 20th century and those were written so long ago. You might have to refer to a commentary or a, some other reference work to figure out uh, the background material on First and Second Kings or First and Second Samuel and get the dating and all that stuff. And they'll help you do this. I mean, you'll go to one of those works and you're going to see there's pages devoted to what I've showed you right here, what I've shown you right here. There's pages devoted to it because everyone knows it's important. It's important mostly because it points you to the theme. We're going to talk about identifying the theme. So there's two kinds of themes, and you need to kind of be aware of both of them, and we're going to be talking about uh, these two themes. There are explicit themes, and then there are implicit themes. And I can tell you we love explicit themes. We like implicit themes, but they're way harder to find, and I'll explain that. So an explicit theme is when the author states his subject directly. He comes out and says, I uh, am writing this for this, with this subject in mind. And there are a number of books of the Bible where it's just that straightforward. The author says, I'm writing this for that in mind. Okay? We're, we're going to be looking at one of those here later in the day uh, when we're not recording. Then an implicit theme is when the theme is left unstated. Now, I phrase this intentionally this way because you need to know that there is a theme. It's just not stated. The author didn't state his theme. I'm not saying the author doesn't have a theme. He just didn't tell you what his theme is. He has a theme. It's there. He just didn't say, this is my theme. And so now you have to still discover that theme. It's just it's, it's discovered differently, and, and we're going to talk about that here momentarily. So those are the two themes, explicit and implicit. We're going to start with explicit themes because they're just way easier. All right, And you're going to see an explicit theme in these texts. Now, if you want to follow along in your Bibles and mark these verses, it's perfectly fine if you want to just take it in your notes. I don't care. Uh, but uh, I'm going to just show you some biblical examples of explicit themes. So one of them is John 20. Now notice, I want you to notice this because this is John 20. Uh, John is a long gospel, and there's a lot of chapters to it, and it's a very long book. And if you started reading it, you'd have to read through 20 chapters before you found John saying, this is what I'm writing about. 20 chapters in, he tells us, this is what I'm writing about. And he says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. Now please, that is a hugely important statement. Because now you know that John has a subject. Jesus did a lot of other things and we do not care about them right now. We only care about the stuff I recorded because these are the ones that relate to my theme. So what he's telling you is, I could have mentioned everything that Jesus did, 
but I was writing about a particular subject, and this is important for that. That, that is a huge statement. So what does it go on to say? Uh, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is his stated theme. I didn't pick those. I chose to write about these things so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. For what purpose? Why? And that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's the purpose right there. You need to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. You need to know he came into this world in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the salvation of the world. Uh, you need to know that he's the Jewish Messiah and you need to recognize that he pre-existed his birth. He is not a human. He's the Son of God. And he entered into this world as a man because he was fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophetic picture of salvation being brought to the ends of the earth so that when you believe in him, you get eternal life. John 3, 16. God so loved you that he sent his son so that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. He set it up early, but he doesn't tell it to you until you get to John 20, an explicit theme. So if you were reading, looking for a theme, you'd be reading carefully and you'd come to this and you'd go, oh, he told me. Now I can go back and start reading all the book of John on why he picked these things and didn't pick some of the other things. You can read some of the other things in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't even talk about any of those, and then there's a whole bunch more none of them talked about. But John picked these for this purpose, and you can read John through this lens, and you can understand what's in the book. Because the major literary unit informs the smaller. And so that's, that's why that theme is important. Luke does a similar thing, only he does it in chapter 1. Now notice, when Luke talks about his explicit theme, he tells it to us in chapter 1. John waited till 20, Luke does it up front. It doesn't matter where they put it, you're going to read the whole book looking for it. And uh, the only thing is, don't quit early. Go ahead and read it and figure it out. So here's Luke's account. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Many people have written about this. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. In other words, they were handed down by the people who saw Jesus, walked with Jesus. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's why. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Notice that's Luke 1.4. Chapter 1, you're going to start reading Luke, and you're going to immediately find that Luke wrote this with the stated purpose of giving an, an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Now, the funny thing is, when you read Luke, you find it to be most unorderly. You read it and you go, this isn't orderly at all. 
And yet Luke is saying, no, it's an orderly account. And you have to go, well, why do I not see the order of it? It's because you're a Western thinker. Eastern thinkers don't think like Western thinkers. And we kind of think chronologically. An orderly account takes place chronologically. This is uh, my birth, my adolescence, my, my teen years, my young adulthood. And we move in that type of a vein. When Luke wrote the book, he did not write a chronological account of the life of Jesus. He wrote a thematic account of the life of Christ. The, one of the ways we know that is if you look at what he does to the Sermon on the Mount. If you read Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitude and it moves through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is what Jesus preached on the mountain. If you look for the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Luke, you will find it torn apart and moved all over the place. Part of the Sermon on the Mount is here, part of it's over there, the Beatitudes sit over here, and he just took this Sermon on the Mount and he moved it. And we go, that's not orderly. No. He wrote an orderly account. And we have to figure out what order he gave to it. Because he researched everything carefully and put it in an order. And now we need to understand his order. But this is what he wrote about, an orderly account of the life of Christ. Why? So that you can be confident of everything you've heard about Jesus. Most excellent, Theophilus. Those are explicit themes. There are implicit themes that, and they're way, way more difficult to identify. But I'm going to show you how easy an explicit theme is to identify And I'm going to show it to you by giving you this assignment. Now, I know the last thing you want from me. I'm not a teacher. And now I have to give you an assignment. You have to do more work. And it's just a Tuesday thing. And uh, Okay, whatever. Read the book of Jude. Identify the explicit theme. You are going to say, oh, there it is. You're going to read it and you're going to go, oh, look at there. I found it. I think that's important. You know why it's important? Because sometimes we think you have to go to Bible college, you have to be a seminary graduate, you got to be some kind of a smart person to figure out the Bible. The average Christian can't do it. The average Christian needs help. And I'm going to prove to you by having you do this that you don't need help. All you have to do is look for it. It's there. God wants you to see it. And so he's put it there for you. So read the book of Jude. Read it on your own. I don't care if your teacher grabs this and says, let's do it in class. I don't care when you do it. Just read it. Do it with your devotional in Jude. And just read the book, Jude. It's one chapter long, by the way. It's not many verses. But in there, Jude says, this is what I'm writing about and here's why. And you're going to be able to go, oh, I found it. And my point to you is this. You're just an average Joe Blow Christian. You don't have any titles in front of your name. You're young, you haven't made a mark on this world yet, you haven't gone to Bible college, you haven't gone to seminary, you're still wet behind the ears. But God talks to you in a way that you can hear his word if you listen. And you can do it. I can do it. And if I can do it, you can do it. I can tell you that. Okay, know that you can do it. That's your assignment. We may or may not check on that. That's just for fun. Implicit themes, however, are way harder. They're way harder to find, and you have to understand how to go about finding these. 
there are themes that are there, but they're not stated. And so what you have to do is you have to find the pieces of, of, of that connect the theme to, to itself. So there is an idea around which all the parts of the book are related, and that's the theme. It's not unlike your assignments when you were learning how to write in elementary school. So when you were learning how to write in elementary school, your teacher gave you an assignment in September and said, well, we don't care what she said. Let's talk about what you wrote about. What you wrote about was this, what I did in June, what I did in July, and what I did in August. Now, if, if I said to you, the first paragraph is about what you did in June, the second paragraph, what you did in August, the third paragraph, uh, July, what, the third paragraph, what you did in August, what are we talking about? All of you would go, my summer vacation. From the parts, you would know the theme. You'd look at the parts and say, that's what the theme is. Because it unifies the parts. You do the same thing with the books of the Bible that have an implicit theme. Now, I don't know if they even have this on television today. I, I don't know, and if they did, I don't even know if you've watched it. But there was a, a game show on, at least several years ago, that was called the $10,000 Pyramid. Does everybody know what I'm talking about when I say the $10,000 Pyramid? Some do. Awesome, thank you. It's a game show that's built on implicit themes. And what the, there's two contestants. One has to guess the theme by the clues given by the other contestant. And so the contestant has to give clues, and then the, the, the clue guesser has to say, this is what you're talking about. And so we're going to play the $10,000 pyramid. If I say to you, Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, what are you going to say? States. You're all going to go, eh, what unifies Mississippi, Missouri, and Ohio are the states. Now what if I said Mississippi, Ohio, Missouri, Nile, North Platte, rivers? You're going to go rivers. Okay, so my theme, my theme is identified by its parts, and it works. There's a whole game show built on the concept. You can do it. You just have to know what you're doing. So the idea in an implicit theme is let's look at the parts, and the parts will identify the theme every time. It's just not stated. It's not hidden. It's not secretive. God's not saying, oh, only the inner club gets to do this. It's just how you go about doing it. So when you're looking for an implicit theme and you can't identify the theme because it's not explicit, you have to start saying, well, what's this first point? What's the next point? And what ties them together? What pieces them together? That's the theme every time. It's going to work every time. I'm going to give you a bunch of examples on this. So we're going to start with, uh, we're going to start with Matthew. And Matthew 1 and 1 says, uh, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So when you start in the first verse of the New Testament, the first verse of the New Testament opens with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it says, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then the genealogy moves from there. I don't know if you're familiar with that. But then he gives the genealogy, and he actually starts with Abraham. 
So his first verse is, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then when he starts his genealogy, he starts with Abraham. And he goes, Abraham had Isaac, and he moves. And then at the end of that, he, he goes, now there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus. Now, the reality is we know there's way more than 14 generations. Matthew's not saying there's only 14. He's saying in my genealogy, there's 14. I got you from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Christ. And his purpose is not to say this is the complete genealogy. He's putting it in 14 generations with an emphasis that's going to show up. So the book starts with this genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then there's an order change. The son of David and the son of Abraham. But that's going backwards, because David followed Abraham, and then when he writes the genealogy, he puts it in correct order, and he starts with Abraham and moves to David. So you would have to say to yourself, I wonder why he did that. Now, well, then you come all the way to the end of the book. This is chapter 28, and you're familiar with this, by the way. This is the passage that we know is the Great Commission, and you've heard this taught, and you've probably talked about it in your classes in school, and you've heard this a lot. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, now notice this, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is the conclusion of the book of Matthew. It begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ and a reversal of the genealogy, David and Abraham. The book ends with Jesus on a mountain talking to his disciples, making this claim, all authority is given to me. That's a pretty weighty statement, but as you think of the first century culture, or if you think about our world today in some countries, uh, which person in the land has absolute authority, has all authority given to them? Is it not the king? Don't kings have authority? Don't they rule? Their word is law, right? Jesus on a mountain is sitting with his disciples at the end of the book and he says, my word is law. My word is law. And you think back to when Jesus spoke on the mountains before this. One was at Mount Sinai. When he spoke with the authority of God and gave the old covenant. One was the Sermon on the Mount. When he spoke with the authority of the king. And the book of Matthew opens with this reversal in the genealogical record. And then ends with Jesus sitting on the mountains with his disciples going, All authority is given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if you were reading this looking for a theme, because you know it's an implicit theme, and you would probably pay attention to the opening verse, and you'd probably pay attention to the end, and you might connect some dots. But if you didn't connect the dots, you would find that in Matthew there's some clues given to you. One of the biggest clues in Matthew about the theme comes in Matthew chapter 2. And this is a text in Matthew that's not recorded in any of the other Gospels, and yet it's a very significant piece of information 
uh, in, the, in the birth records of Jesus Christ. And so the other Gospels do not record this, only Matthew, and yet we see it as hugely significant. All right? So here's what it says. And now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, now look at their question, in the mouth of wise men from probably Babylon, but they came from the east, wise men from the east, say to the Jewish people, to Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Their question could be rephrased if you want to. Where is he who is born in the line of David? Because God promised that David would have a son to sit on his throne. And Matthew opens and reverses the genealogical record to prioritize David. And the first question that gets raised in this text in the only, this, as the only account in the gospel record, it comes from the mouth of wise men from the east. And it's almost comical that this king has been born in Israel and nobody knows. Nobody cares. It's the wise men from the east. Uh, what? And they show up in Israel and they go, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now your mind attaches the genealogical record of Jesus, the son of David, to all authority being given to me. And you start to tie things together. Oh, who has authority? Why do they ask this question? Because Jesus comes in the line of David. Certainly he's the Messiah. We're not going to argue that. He's the son of Abraham through whom blessing comes. But the emphasis is now falling on the king of the Jews. You know what the theme of Matthew is? Jesus, the king of the Jews. That's the theme. It's an implicit theme. We've identified it, and I realize I'm walking you through this, but it's identified by looking at the pieces. What attaches a genealogical record to all authority to the question of the Magi? A reign Someone with authority in the line of David. Okay, so this goes on. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, isn't that a crazy story, honestly? Magi from the east come, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Herod doesn't know. He calls all the chief priests and scribes. They, he was born and nobody knows. These are, the, these are the rulers. These are the big people of Israel. And Jesus, the king, the son of David, is born and nobody cares. Come on. Something is off. And they told him. Here's, here's their answer. In Bethlehem of Judea, now this they know, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So now twice in this passage you have, have a reference to ruler. One is prophetic, 
One is seeing a star in his east. And the scribes and Pharisees who are not aware of this should have been aware of it because even a prophet said, in Bethlehem you're going to get a ruler born and all this stuff happened and it was, they were unaware of it. But you're reading in this text an emphasis on ruler. And you're attaching parts. So in Matthew chapter 9, and, and this happened in our church just uh, two Sundays ago. So I'm attending this church in Gretna. The pastor's preaching through Mark, and he was talking about the story of Jairus and his daughter. His daughter was dying. She's 12-year-old. She's dying or dead, and he has absolutely no hope. No doctor can fix her. So he, he hears Jesus is in the area. He comes over to Jesus. And, and Mark says he fell at his feet. He fell at his feet and begged him to come to his daughter. And uh, the pastor said, you know, it's funny, but in Matthew, Matthew says he knelt at his feet. It doesn't say he fell at his feet, but Matthew actually takes that same story and says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Matthew's emphasis wasn't he fell at his feet, but he knelt. It's thematic. What do you do before kings? You show respect. You kneel. You don't, you just fall at his feet and beg. You get down before him on your knees and properly say, I need your authority. And so Matthew very subtly puts this way of treating kings into the text that you would never identify if you weren't looking for it. In fact, I've taught Matthew. I never identified it until two weeks ago our pastor brought it up. And Matthew's choosing a word that fits his theme. The theme informs the details all the way down to the words. That's pretty cool. And they start to stand out as you pay attention to some of this stuff. Now I'm going to walk you through Acts. Acts is an implicit theme. Nowhere in the book of Acts does Luke say, I am writing this about this. Nowhere does he say that. But very clearly, we can identify his theme. It's an implicit theme, and very clearly, if you're watching for the clues, you can follow it and identify the theme. So I'm going to pick to you the major, I'm going to show you the major movements in the book of Acts. And if you're tracking with Luke and the major movements in the book of Acts, you will be able to identify what's happening. And one of them is Acts 5. This is after Peter, I think Peter and John are released from prison miraculously and uh, uh, then they're called before the chief priest, the council, and the high priest questions them. And so when they had brought them, they set them before the council, that's the Sanhedrin, and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now out of the mouth of the high priest, the ruler of Israel's religion, the highest position of religious authority, out of his mouth, he's looking at these apostles and he's, and he's saying, listen, we told you not to teach this stuff around here anymore and yet you have Fill Jerusalem with this teaching. And an opponent, the opposition, is vocalizing everyone in Jerusalem. 
has heard about Jesus. So what happens next in the book of Acts? Well, if you keep reading, you hit the, uh, the deacon story, uh, the Greek women not being fed, and then we're introduced to Stephen. Then we come to Stephen who gets stoned, and then right after that story, in Acts 8, we read this. Now those who were scattered, the persecution, great persecution arose, and now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So now Jerusalem is filled. The next story leads us into this great persecution and the Christians now have to spread out. And one of the places they go is Samaria. And Philip begins to proclaim in Samaria the message of Jesus. Then you come to Acts 10. And this is the story of Peter. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So he's a Gentile. He's a, he's a Roman soldier. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to all the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. So in Acts 10, we get another major shift. We go from Jerusalem being filled to Samaria in Acts 8. And what we know about Samaria is that they were kind of half-breeds. They were Jew-Gentile mix. In Acts 10, Peter is called to the home of a Gentile, a Roman soldier. And you know the story of the food coming down on the sheets and the angel says, arise and eat. And Peter goes, I will never eat that stuff. Unclean food has never entered my lips. And the angel says, what I have called clean. Don't you ever call unclean. Three times. Peter goes, I'm not eating that. Yes, you are. If I call it clean, don't you call it unclean. Right when Peter comes out of this trance, someone knocks on the door. And they go, an angel met me over here in Caesarea, met my master over here in Caesarea and said that we're supposed to come and bring you there. You know what one of the things Peter says? I have never set foot in a Gentile's home. I have never never set foot in such an unclean environment. That's so wrong! But God showed me that what he calls clean, I can't look at and call unclean. And then the story develops and goes to the end. And while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. That is a major movement in the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Samaria, Gentiles. We have now reached the scum of the earth. By the way, that's most of you. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen come to the end of the book of Acts and you find Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, completing his ministry and he was imprisoned in Rome under house arrest and he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So watch the movement in Acts. Jerusalem spreading out, scattered into Samaria to the Gentiles, then the capital city of Gentile rule, and Paul having freedom to preach the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. And so you're moving this message of Jesus from this local Jewish group to the ends of the earth. Because Rome at that time, in the Jewish mind, was the ends of the earth. Now, if you were to open the book of Acts and start to read, you would start to read and you would get to this verse in the first chapter. And you would find Luke saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. And you'd go, oh, Luke doesn't have to tell me that's his theme. But I know that's his theme because that's how he's outlined the book. The first five chapters talk about Jerusalem. Chapters 5 through 8 get us in, uh, excuse me, 8 and 9 get us into Samaria. Uh, chapter 10 gets us into the Greek world, the Gentile world, and it ends in Rome. The ends of the earth, the capital of Gentile rule. And the book is outlined to meet that outline right there. And all I can suggest to you is that if you're looking for this intentionally, looking how the pieces relate, you will see it's a geographic movement of the gospel. And actually, you've heard it preached that way. Your churches preach it this way. This is our Jerusalem, you know. We live here, and, and this is our Jerusalem, and we've got to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And every church has a missions program that moves to the United States and then off our shores into the rest of the world. And, you know, as the nation of the United States has become more secularized, more paganized, we're sending fewer and fewer missionaries. So what we're seeing is missionaries from other countries come here. So we get African missionaries coming to the United States. We get Korean missionaries coming to the United States. And they're coming to us because we're failing to get to the ends of the earth. And so now they're going back to us because they're over there following Acts 1.8 in a modern culture. This is the task. Get the gospel to the ends of the world. And we've dropped the ball as Americans. Thankfully, by the grace of God, someone is bouncing it back our way. Uh, thank God for this vision. But that is the theme of Acts. It's that simple. Now, do you have to read it? Do you have to do some work to figure it out? Yes. But when you look at the ideas of each part, they attach together around a geographical movement of the gospel to the Gentile territories. Because that's what God promised. The, God, the Jesus Christ is not so small that he would be the Savior of the Jews only. But he'd reach to the ends of the world. Acts 1.8 Okay, so now I'm going to give you one more example here in Philippians. And I'm going to move you through Philippians 1-6. through 6. Now before I move you through Philippians 1-6, through 6, I'm going to remind you of the background material. So in Philippians 1 through 6, I, excuse me, in Philippians, we know that Paul wrote to the Philippians and he was writing a thank you letter because, as he stated, they were partnering in the gospel. So they were joining in the work of the gospel by their, by their financial support. And in fact, when you go to church and you have a missionary speaker come in and the missionary speaker gets up and tells you what God is doing and wherever they're being a missionary, and one of the things a missionary says to you every time is, thank you for your support. 
we could not do it without you, and you are actually serving the cause of Christ in your financial support of us, even though we're on the front line. Every missionary teaches that, and they include you in the work. They go, we're not doing this alone. In fact, we couldn't even do our part unless you helped us. You are an essential part of this ministry. Every missionary does that, and if they don't, they're remiss. Now watch what Paul does as he starts this letter of, of Philippians, and he does this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Oh man, can you believe he says this? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He introduces to you the concept of the whole book in the first paragraph. I thank God every day that there are people from the first day of their salvation who said, I am going to partner in the cause of the gospel. It's going to be my mission in life. And out of your extreme poverty, you said the highest purpose of my life is to partner in the gospel. And he introduces it right there in the opening piece of the letter. And he ties it to his thank you at the end. I thank you for your gift because you partnered with me in the gospel. Huge. A major theological lesson which I'm going to bring out in a minute. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now you know what the good work is. The good work of God in you is to continue to work in you so that you will partner with the gospel. Do you recognize that every single day you wake up, God is saying, a partner of mine just woke up. And their purpose for today is to partner in the gospel. Hey, did you get that? When you play on your baseball team, when you play on your volleyball team, when you come to school, when you go to work, God says, oh, that's a partner of mine. The day they got saved, I've united them to Jesus Christ, and they are a partner of mine in the cause of the gospel. You get up every day and you never think about it. And yet God says, that's how I identify you. You know you have a purpose to life? When you get married, and when you, when you have children, you're going to have a family. You know what your purpose in that family is? Partnering in the cause of the gospel. And you're going to be an agent of the gospel to your spouse? And you're going to parent as a partner in the gospel. And if you don't, you're remiss. Because God says you're a partner from the first day all the way until now when you sent me the gift, Paul writes. It's the mission of a life. Now, once you see these parts and you identify, okay, we're talking about helping out in the gospel and being a partner in the gospel, the pieces of the book start to make sense to us a little bit. And I want to show you this in chapter 3. So in chapter 3, Paul writes a very strange passage. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And in chapter 3, he actually writes to the Philippian church and he says, Watch out for those dogs. And he's calling someone a dog. Watch out for those evildoers. Watch out for those mutilators of the flesh. And he's giving a strict warning to us on how to view people who 
are, in this case, dogs, evildoers, and who mutilate the flesh. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about people who insist on circumcision. And what they're saying is, you cannot be saved unless you get circumcised. And if, if your circumcision isn't enough, it's just the first step towards following the law of Moses. And when someone comes to you and says, you can't be a Christian with Jesus alone, you have to have Jesus plus circumcision Look out for those people. Have nothing to do with those people. Get rid of them out of your midst. Look out for them. They are of no good influence. Jesus saves, and Jesus alone saves, and you cannot attach anything to that. You cannot say Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and communion, Jesus and baptism. Nothing gets attached to Jesus. Jesus saves. Look out for the evil workers who attach things to Jesus. What's interesting is when you come to chapter 4, oh, he goes on in here and says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's your reference to circumcision and no confidence in the flesh. Now in chapter 4 he says this, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now look at the complete opposites. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Yodi and Syntyche, encourage them, plead with them to agree together. Why? Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. When someone comes in teaching a bad gospel, look out for them. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're mutilators of the flesh. With Yodi and Syntyche, you help them get along because they are partners with me in the gospel. They have labored side by side with me in the gospel and their names are in the book of life. This is a book on partnership in the gospel and it's the parts of the book that point us to that. And this tells you, if you're looking through that lens, that you have to respond differently to different people with messages. Some people come with legalism. Watch out for legalism. Legalism is the poison to the gospel. It will detrimentally affect everyone's view of how you get to heaven. Everyone's view of Jesus Christ. The gospel says Jesus is sufficient. Legalism says Jesus is not sufficient. You need something more circumcision, communion, baptism, I don't care what you attach. Jesus is not enough. Watch out for that theology. But when you're a partner in the gospel, you get along. You fight the right fight. And every time we fight each other, we're not doing the right thing. We're fighting the wrong battle. We work together in the cause of the gospel because we're partners in the gospel. And we never turn the battle of Christianity towards other Christians. The battle of Christianity is in, the, is in the lost world and the false messages claim to be from God. Fight the right fight because you're a partner in this war. Know your theology and fight for that. That's the idea. Now look... Paul never said to the Philippians, here's what I'm writing about. But all the pieces attached to that, all of them. And if you're looking for those pieces, 
you can figure it out. You can figure it out.